The American Council of the Blind presents ACB Reports, a monthly news magazine containing topics of interest to people who are blind or have low vision. I'm Mike Duke. This month... When you're reading really good writing, when you say the words, it's a sensual type of an experience almost. It's a joy, it's a pleasure to put your voice to this work. Meet Gregory Gorton the voice of over 600 talking books. Welcome to ACB Reports for November 2013. A highlight of each annual conference and convention of the American Council of the Blind is the opportunity to meet the person behind a voice that most attendees already know. They know the voice because the person is a narrator of talking books for the National Library Service. This year, that person was Gregory Gorton, a narrator at Potomac Talking Book Services in Bethesda, Maryland. He was introduced by then ACB Secretary, now Second Vice President, Marlena Lieberg. One of my very most absolute favorite things in the world to do at convention has one of the most absolute, very most favorite things to do in my private life. They're both related, and that has to do with talking books. How many people in this room love their talking book narrators? And because it's my last year, how many people in this room go to bed with their talking book narrators? Well, it is my great joy to introduce to you the voice behind 600 books. Now, I have in front of me an incredible bio on Gregory Gorton, which I could read, but what I want to do is give him the time to talk to you. But I, I want to highlight that not only will you hear Greg's voice in NLS books, but he reads for Audible Inc., he reads for BBC Audio, and several others. But the other thing I want to highlight, which being a, an animal lover and a guide dog handler, at the very, very bottom of his bio, it says, Greg lives in Bethesda, Maryland with his wife and their furry children, Nicholas and Fraser. What I think is interesting is we don't know his wife's name, but we know the furry children's name. Bring a rousing ACB welcome to our friend and narrator, Gregory Gorton. Gregory... Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Good morning. You're not the first person to point out that I didn't have my wife's name in there. I don't think I have to tell you who the first person was. Her name's Sandy, by the way. And she's a wonderful, tolerant, patient woman. Wow, I can't tell you what a thrill and an honor it is for me to be here with you this morning. Thank you all for getting up early and for being here to be uh, a part of this. I'm not going to stand up here and read my bio to you. Uh, I mean, I, I can touch on a couple of things if you're interested. But, you know, I've been an actor, a professional actor, for a long time. And there is nothing more boring than sitting in a room full of actors 
and listening to them talk because they just want to talk about themselves and what they're doing and the fact that, oh, that reviewer couldn't possibly get the meaning of the part. Believe me, if you ever have insomnia, go to the nearest room of actors. <laughs> They'll put you out faster than that Advil PM or any of that stuff. Yeah, along with the talking books, I've worked for the Discovery Channel and National Geographic, and I've done all sorts of television, and uh, I've done some independent films, and I've had a very long and varied career, and it's been a lot of fun. It's also been a lot of hard work. And that's the funny thing. Uh, people don't understand that the work that we do for you all is really hard work. About five years ago, I was promoted to a casting director at uh, Potomac Talking Books, and I knew that I had a lot to live up to because I had to bring people in who could live up to your expectations, who could live up to the expectations not only of the Library of Congress, but of my own expectations and my own personal tastes in terms of their abilities. And I'm a pretty tough customer as far as that's concerned because I know... I've had the opportunity to meet a lot of you folks in other uh, events like this, and I know what you expect of us. You don't probably know how important you are to us. All of the narrators at uh, Potomac Talking Books who are a part of the library service, we work really hard to make sure that you are getting the very best of us, <laughs> that you are getting the very finest book narration that we can do. When I am doing auditions, I look for trained, experienced, staged actors, people that I know that when they pick up a script or a book or something like that, they're not going to be unfamiliar with the ability to tell a story, which is my main thing. Um, I try to tell these folks, you know, your, your biggest thing is you got to remember that you have to bring these words alive, that the words on the page have to come alive for our clients. You can't just read. You have to breathe life into what we're doing. It's not that easy. And I have had people with Broadway credits who just don't get it. And I've had to say, sorry, eh, next. And they just don't get it. And it's, it's really disheartening sometimes. Uh, but then you find that one person, and wow. When you do, and you hear a really good reading, it just is exciting. And, of course, you can't have really good reading without having really good writing. That is what excites me. And the only thing that I can really kind of equate it to is when you have a wonderful meal and each bite is like just an experience, it's like, oh, man, that is so good. When you're reading really good writing, when you say the words, it's a sensual type of an experience almost, it's a joy, it's a pleasure to put your voice to this work. When you're reading Stephen King or, or John Grisham or, or some of the people that I've read, Joe Gores and Robert Crace and Jim Butcher, they are just wonderful writers. And uh, let's get to it. Let's have some fun. I thought that since it was the morning, I would try to keep it a little bit on the lighter side, uh, try to do some things that I, hopefully you'll find fun. And... Um, a couple of them require a little bit of setup. So this first book is from a book called Who Done It. The concept here is there is a man who is not the most well-loved man, and his name is Herman Q. Mildew. 
Now, Mr. Mildew is not well-liked, as you will find out. Mr. Mildew is an editor, and Mr. Mildew is, we think, murdered. And prior to his murder, Mr. Mildew has invited a total of 80 writers and illustrators to this abandoned pickle factory in New York, ostensibly to give them some news. When they get there, the man who wrote this, John Shexa, who is sort of the one who is kind of shepherding everyone through this, mentions the fact that Mr. Mildew has been murdered and says they all must present their alibis in writing. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read to you the introduction, which sort of sets up what's happening, and then I'm going to read to you one of the alibis that is particularly good, I think. So this is from Who Done It by John Shexa. Ladies and gentlemen, I call you that, but realizing that you're all writers and illustrators, you know who you are. You were all invited to this party tonight because of your relationship with Mr. Herman Q. Mildew. Some of you were not fond of him, others of you could not stand him, and most of you completely hated his guts. <laughs> Mr. Mildew brought you to this abandoned pickle factory because he had something to tell you, something that he thought would make you all very mad, and he wanted to see all of you freak out live and in person. But that is not going to happen. You see, Mr. Mildew, Mr. Herman Q. Mildew is no longer with us. He has shuffled off this mortal coil, took the long walk off the short pier. He has gone to glory, gave up the ghost, cashed in, checked out, kicked the bucket, went bye-bye. <laughs> the problem? Each and every one of you had a reason to send Mr. Herman Q. Mildew to the great beyond. And as you well know, Herman Mildew was not a nice man. He was mean, arrogant, loud, large, obnoxious, cruel to small furry animals, delusional, thoughtless, difficult, vulgar, negative, fond of toenail clippings and strong cheeses. <laughs> Hugely entertained by the misfortune of others, hateful, quick to anger, unforgiving, mean, gaseous, belligerent, demanding, smelly, in short, an editor... Perhaps even your editor. <laughs> or perhaps the editor of someone you admire. Of course, before you begin, you are going to be presenting your alibis. I am bound by law to advise you that you have the right to remain silent, but who am I kidding? <laughs> you are, as I mentioned, a bunch of writers and illustrators. You couldn't remain silent if your life depended on it. You'd sell your grandmother for an audience. So if you would please, tell us your alibis. And this alibi is from a fine writer named Dave Eggers. I did not kill Mildew, but I tried. <laughs> Repeatedly. So my alibi is really just a list of failed attempts. I started trying to kill Mildew back in the mid-1970s. As you know, Mildew is a gluttonous man. So back in 78, I thought I'd send him giant sausages every day, hoping that he would eat each one and have a heart attack by the end of the month. 
It didn't happen. Now, these were huge sausages, at least four feet each, but he ate all 31 and then asked for more. Now the man is 600 pounds, and he still eats a giant sausage every day. And he thanks me for it. In 1979, someone had just made a disco version of all the songs from Star Wars. I bought the record and sent it to Mildew, hoping that it would melt his brain. It didn't. He hums the theme, the disco version, every time I see him. He thanks me for that, too. In 1980, I intercepted a shipment of a particularly smelly type of banana. At first, I thought I would send them to him, hoping he'd eat them all and choke or suffocate from the smell. But I'd learned from the sausage experience. So instead, I figured I'd just drop them all on his house. So I rented a cargo plane, loaded it with the bananas, and dropped them from about 4,200 feet. They crushed his house, sure, but he survived. He was in his basement eating sausages. <laughs> Turns out that's where he eats them. Well, he wanted to renovate his house, and the bananas flattening it gave him the push and insurance money he needed to get the job done. He invites me over to his new place all the time. I want to thank you, he says. Since then, I've tried a few dozen different ways of doing him in. I sent an infestation of hermit crabs into his house. I'd heard they were aggressive, but this was not true. They were tame, even friendly. So I sent in those kinds of frogs that give you hallucinations if you lick them. Mildred, though, who licks or eats anything he can reach, didn't lick them. He named them. Now he thanks me for introducing him to the crabs and the frogs. They're some of my best friends, he says. Now, a few years ago, I met a monkey who seemed like it could be trained to kill a guy like Mildew. So the monkey and I went through six weeks of intense Mildew-killing training. I thought the monkey knew how to kill Mildew, and I taught him how to kill him with a wiffle ball bat, a handsaw, and a pair of pliers. Finally, I felt like the monkey was trained well and ready to go. I sent the monkey into Mildew's house, his new house. And what happens? Three months later, they were married. <laughs> Turns out the monkey was a girl, and Mildew really had a thing for lady monkeys. He thanks me for that, too. You introduced me to his wife, he says. Come on over and let me thank you with dinner. Hey, you can visit the frogs and crabs, too. Since then, I've tried offing mildew with schemes involving the usual tools, ball bearings, duct tape, groups of Canadian teenagers. None of these things have worked. That mildew is a hard man to kill. The end. When I started out in this business, uh, I actually started out doing stand-up comedy. And one of my heroes was George Carlin. And uh, I wanted to do a piece for you. If you're familiar with Mr. Carlin's work, you know that finding a piece that would be family-friendly. Uh, yeah, somebody up on the panel just said these seven dirty words. I'm not going to be doing that. 
It seems like you're all familiar enough to know what I'm talking about. I've done all of those books. This is actually from a book called Brain Droppings by George Carlin. And this is his ruminations on two of America's favorite pastimes. No, not that one. No, this is about baseball and football. Baseball and football are the two most popular sports in this country. And as such, it seems that they ought to be able to tell us something about ourselves and our values. And maybe, maybe about how those values have changed over the last 150 years. So for those reasons, I enjoy comparing baseball and football. Baseball is a 19th century pastoral game. Football is a 20th century technological struggle. <laughs> baseball is played on a diamond in a park, the baseball park. Football is played on a gridiron in a stadium, sometimes called Soldier Field or War Memorial Stadium. <laughs> baseball begins in the spring, the season of new life. Football begins in the fall when everything is dying. <laughs> in football, you wear a helmet. In baseball, you wear a cap. Football is concerned with downs. What down is it? Baseball is concerned with ups. Who's up? Are you up? I'm not up. He's up. In football, you receive a penalty. In baseball, you make an error. In football, the specialist comes in to kick. In baseball, the specialist comes in to relieve somebody. Football has hitting, clipping, spearing, piling on, personal fouls, late hitting, and unnecessary roughness. Baseball has the sacrifice. Football is played in any kind of weather. Rain, snow, sleet, hail, fog. Can't see the game. Don't know if there's a game going on. Mud on the field. Ha! Can't read the uniforms. Can't read the yard markers. The struggle will continue. In baseball, if it rains... We don't go out to play. I can't go out, it's raining. Baseball has the seventh inning stretch. Football has the two-minute warning. Baseball has no limit, no time limit at all. We don't know when it's going to be over. Football is rigidly timed. And we'll end even if we have to go to sudden death. <laughs> and finally, the objectives of the two games are really completely different. In football, the object is for the quarterback, otherwise known as the field general, to be on target with his aerial assault, riddling the defense by hitting his receivers with deadly accuracy in spite of the blitz. Even if he has to use the shotgun... With short bullet passes and long bombs, he marches his troops into enemy territory, balancing the aerial assault with a sustained ground attack that punches it in forward into the wall of the enemy's defensive line. In baseball, the object is to go home. <laughs> and to be safe.
I hope I'll be safe at home. The end. I got one more, about five minutes. There's a gentleman who writes for Sports Illustrated, and I narrated his book about, I don't know, seven or eight years ago. It was called Hate Mail from Cheerleaders. This is just a very, a very moving little story that I thought you all would enjoy. It's called Half the Size, Twice the Man. It's halftime of a game in Dayton, Ohio on September 16th. Colonel White High against Mount Healthy. After Colonel White leaves the locker room, the refs approach the coaches on the sideline. Crew chief Dennis Daly announces, Number 77 can't play in this game anymore. He's not wearing shoes, knee pads, or thigh pads. Head coach Earl White just stares at him. But he doesn't have any legs, White says. Sorry, Daly says. It's the rule. Number 99 is senior Bobby Martin. Backup nose guard, a starter on punt coverage, and a kid, yes, born without legs. Doesn't slow him down much. He runs on his hands about as quickly as his teammates do on their feet. Strong as a John Deere tractor in the chest and arms, and he benches 215. He wants to go out for track. And now... They were telling him he couldn't play without shoes. I didn't get it, says Bobby. The ref took a look at me, and I don't have feet or knees. How can I wear shoes if I don't have feet? A rule is a rule, Daly said. Bobby was pretty disconsolate as he sat on the sidelines. So how can you throw a legless kid out of a game for not wearing shoes? What are you going to do? You're going to throw an armless kid out for not wearing a wristband? And even if he were suddenly to produce shoes and thighs and knee pads, where was Bobby supposed to wear them? From his ears? In fact, Bobby did borrow a pair of cleats and came out during the third quarter with them tied to his belt. You want me to wear shoes? Okay, I'm wearing shoes. But the school's athletic director took them off, telling him that it was undignified. Though, by the ref's own black-and-white logic, it should have worked. I mean, where is it written that the shoes have to be worn on the feet? Is there anything worse than a whistle-worshipping, self-important stiff who can't see past his precious rule book to the situation that stands in front of him, even if that situation is a kid who stands about three feet tall and weighs 112 pounds, 101 of it, all heart? The rule says you have to wear shoes and pads, period, Daly told White. He can't play. There's certain things that handicapped people can't and shouldn't do, and one of them is play football. Who in their right mind would put this kid out there? You know, it'd be nice if any of these people actually took five minutes to get to know Bobby Martin before deciding what he can and can't do with his life. He bowls, dances, he does flips and cartwheels, he flies off staircases on his custom-made skateboard, he weaves down the hall between classes doing one-handed handstands, he built his own computer. He's the guy you go to if your car stereo doesn't work. Your car, too, for that matter. Whatever he lacks in height, he makes up for in humor. The other day, one of the coaches, who happens to be missing a front tooth, told the players, Okay, everybody take a knee. Even you, Bobby. <laughs> to which Bobby cracked back, Sure, coach, right after you go visit an orthodontist. But along come knee-jerk Barney Fife types like Daly, who decide that it's their place to put a leash on the kid. The ref said they were doing it for his safety, Coach White says. 
White tried to explain that Bobby had passed his physical, already had clearance. We can show you the rule, the ref said. White took his broken-up player aside and said, Don't worry about this. You'll be back playing next week. And he was right. On September 19th, the Ohio High School Athletic Association said the officials were wrong and sent White a letter, which he'll keep in his back pocket just in case Daly should get a copy, too, for his cave. (laughs) Everything was back to normal last weekend. Bobby Martin was happy again and playing without shoes. And official Dennis Daly and his crew were back to refing without brains. Well, they're telling me that uh, my time is up. Uh, I wanted to do some... Yes, I know, I know. But you have uh, legislative business to get to, and coming from Washington, D.C., I know how exciting that is. So I just want to thank all of you once again, and I want you to know how important you are to all of us. You really are our heroes, and we will continue to try to do the very, very best we can for your enjoyment, for your education, for your satisfaction, and most of all, for your pleasure, and most of all, because we love you, and we want to make sure that we're doing whatever we can just to help make your world a little bit nicer, a little bit better, and a little bit more fun. Thank you very much. Gregory Gordon was recorded at the annual conference of the American Council of the Blind in Columbus, Ohio, in July of 2013. Just for fun, as the program draws to a close, can you name the title, author, and narrator of the first talking book you ever read? For this host, that book was Eddie and His Big Deals by Carolyn Haywood. The narrator, or reader, as they were called in 1960, was Milton Metz. Over a half century and thousands of listening hours after that first thrilling encounter, the magic of the talking book lives on. In this time of Thanksgiving, here's a sincere thank you to all of the people who make that magic happen. You've been listening to ACB Reports, heard on radio information services nationwide on side four of the Braille Forum cassette edition and throughout the world on acbradio.org. ACB Reports is produced at Radio Reading Service of Mississippi, a service of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Send suggestions and comments about this program to reports at acbradio.org. Contact the American Council of the Blind online at acb.org or phone 800-424-8666. Thanks for listening, and please join us again next month for another ACB Reports.